Proverbs chapter 9, and we'll read verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Amen. Amen. Well, let's recap a little bit of where we have come thus far and the two messages that we've um, had and that we've looked at on this subject of the fear of the Lord. And if you remember the first one, I just tried to read several verses, both from the Old and New Testament, to give us a feel for how prevalent this theme is in Scripture. This is not just a sub-theme in Scripture that comes up in a few obscure places and then the Bible moves on. But actually, this concept of the fear of God or the fear of the Lord is all throughout the Bible. Often, it's used interchangeably with what it means to be a believer. For instance, Psalm 30, Psalm 130. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. 13. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting to those who fear him. You see how the Bible is just using this concept of the fear of God and fearing the Lord interchangeably with what it means to be a true believer. And there's also this very important verse in Jeremiah 30, uh, 32 that promises that every person in the new covenant will fear the Lord. Now this may seem basic, but if this was understood, it would clear up a lot of confusion about what it means to be a Christian and who can make a claim to being a Christian. Listen to this in Jeremiah 32. It says this, and this is God. He's not saying he's going to try and do this. He's saying he's going to do this for to every single Christian. He says, I will give them one heart in one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good and I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. It's very important. You cannot create the fear of the Lord. You can't just wish that upon yourselves. Only God can make a person fear Him. But He will do that for every believer. So everyone who wants to make a claim of being a Christian must be able to say with a clear conscience, Yes, I fear God. You know, if, if you're familiar with many with writings, especially um, the Reformers and the Puritans, even up to the 18th century guys, the Evangelist and Whitfield and Wesleyan, some of those guys, it was synonymous with being a Christian. They would say, are you God-fearing? That's how prevalent that it was. So in the last two messages we covered, we looked at two essential aspects of the fear of the Lord. The first is a consciousness of God, and the second is the God we are conscious of. Those are the two different aspects. So in the first message, we looked at a consciousness of God. And a helpful way to kind of review this point is to quote, read this quote from John Murray again. And it says this, here's what John Murray says about this need, this essential aspect 
of being conscious of God. Quote, The fear of God implies our constant consciousness of relation to God, that, while we are also related to angels, demons, men, and things, our primary relationship is to God, and all other relationships are determined by and to be interpreted in terms of our relation to Him. The first thought of the godly man in every circumstances is God's relation to him and it, and his and its relation to God. That is God consciousness, and that is what the fear of God entails. Essential. Essential. It feels like it's basic, and it feels like that's a point that you wouldn't even need to bring out, but we forget ourselves. We get used to this kind of language, and we get used to this kind of talk. This idea of being conscious of God every moment of your life is entirely foreign to the world. As Psalm 10.4 says, The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek God. All of his thoughts are... There is no God. There is no God. The world lives their life. Understand this. The world lives their life and they're making day-to-day decisions. They're making these large decisions. They're sitting down to their dinner. They're carrying on with their entire life and God is not in their thoughts. God is not in their thoughts. And that is the great problem of... The problem in the lives of people tonight, there is no consciousness or consideration of God. They never consider God. Or if they do, it is a very weak consideration that God is one of many options. This God consciousness is the first essential ingredient in understanding what it means to fear the Lord. But we go on, and in the second message, we discussed the God that we must be conscious of. A.W. Tozer says this, What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now that is important. What comes into our mind, what comes into your mind when I say the word God is the most important thing about you. Who do you believe that God is? Because the second great problem in the world tonight is that when people think of God, their conception of God is not the God of the Bible. Not the holy God who is majestic in glory and wonderful in praises. People have wrong views of God. People treat God as common. So you have Uzzah in 2 Samuel who didn't think twice about grabbing the ark. Or you have Nadab and Abihu who figure they can offer sacrifices how they want. Or if you come all the way to the New Testament, you have Ananias and Sapphira thinking, you know, here they've already made a sacrifice. They're just going to hold a little bit back from God and they're going to tell this little lie about it. And so they lie to the apostles in the presence of God. And in each of these cases, their low view of God and their wrong views of God cost them their lives. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, when commenting on that verse, fear and trembling and what it means, he says it means that God is serious business. Are you serious about God? It says this right here in Leviticus 10, commenting on this event with Nadab and Abihu. 
It says, Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all people, I will be honored. So Aaron therefore kept silent. Low views of God, wrong views of God hurt people. And they lead to wrong conclusions. And they lead to wrong lifestyles. It cannot be overemphasized how important it is that you know God according to truth. It says in Hosea, my people are destroyed because of lack of knowledge. It's not because they didn't have enough church programs. It's not because they didn't have all these things going right. It's not because they didn't have all of these life tips that are useful, but not necessarily essential. What is essential is that we think about God. When we think the thought of God, that what comes into our mind corresponds with what God has revealed about himself in his word. God is not some puny deity that claims a few religious denominations in one day of the week. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. See, a low view of God is hurtful. I was talking, Ryan and I were talking earlier, and I was talking about, man, we need a view of God like Jonathan Edwards had. There's so much majesty and so much glory, so much reality. God's not just this this person that's out there, this option, this one among many options, but he stands there in blazing light. It is not hard to surrender yourself to a God like that. But when you have low views of God, it does get hard. We need a renewal that when God does anything, he does it wonderful. And he does it wonderfully in the truest sense of the word. He's wonderful in his goodness. He's wonderful in his wrath. He's wonderful in his love. He's wonderful in his mercy. When God does something, it inspires wonder and awe in the truest sense of the word. And if the God we are, not, we are conscious of is not this God the, God, the God of the Bible, we will not fear him in any real sense of the term. But now we come to tonight. And what can happen when we talk about this consciousness of God and this God that we are conscious of and when, God, when, when the Bible talks about the God we are conscious of, it emphasizes His holiness. And it emphasizes His glory and it emphasizes His majesty. It's easy to get a wrong view of God that will lead to a wrong fear of God. Often what can happen in our minds and even in discussions and things like that, we can pit attributes like God's holiness against His love. And when you do that, you will go down the wrong road of thoughts about God and it will lead to a wrong fear about Him. And so in my study of the Bible and in my study on this um, subject of the fear of the Lord, this last aspect is something that I want to emphasize that comes up over and over and it's that there are actually two types of fears that the Bible talks about. One of the fears is commended and one of the fears is forbidden. So let's look at this. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. And let's read this verse, this striking verse. Exodus 20 verse 20. 
concept is uh, the context is the ten, giving of the Ten Commandments. Verse 20, Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. Do you see anything strange about that verse? Anything that might make you think, now what is that? I mean, now you said, because literally it's do not fear, God has come to make you fear. And so these types of verses to me are helpful because they, the, they present the issue. The Bible is not unaware of the issues that surround things like this in theology. Do not be afraid. God has come to make you afraid. Do not fear. God has come to make you fear. And so what we see in this verse and what we see when we look throughout the Bible is that there are two types of fears that are spoken of. There is one fear that is essential to godliness and another fear that is forbidden and they are known primarily by the effect that they have on people. There's one type of fear that will actually repel you from God. And there's another type of fear that the Bible talks about that will actually draw you to God. And you can see in this passage right here, God saying, Do not fear. Don't have the type of fear that's going to repel you from me. I want you to have the type of fear that's going to draw you to me. So let's look at this tonight. First, let's look at this fear that is forbidden. There is a fear that God forbids of his people. And if we look at the context of Exodus chapter 20, it will help us to understand what this fear entails. Let's start back at verse 18. Okay, Israel has just gotten the Ten Commandments, and this is what happens. All the people perceive the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking and when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. This first type of fear that God forbids is a view of God that views him as the great punisher. The great punisher. This type of fear always drives a person away from the Lord. You can see that in the context here of what we just read. All this awesome glory is being manifested, thunder, light. I mean, picture, like we're reading this, actually picture this. Picture this massive mountain that's quaking, lightning's flashing everywhere, thunder. I mean, this is a sight. It is awesome in the old sense of the word like we used to use it before we talked about french fries being awesome. Like this is actually awesome what's going on here in this context. And what happens to the people? They stand at a distance and they say, Moses, you speak to us. We don't want him to speak to us anymore. We don't think we can handle this. You speak to us. And it is this view of God as the great punisher. It's afraid of God in a craven sense of the word. Kids, if I were talking to you, I would explain this in terms of a big bully. Like, you know, if there's this guy, he's always picking on people, he's always hurting people, and you're walking down a hall, and you see him around the corner, and he's coming right at you. And the only thing you want to do is get out of there. There's some people that think about God like that. You think he's just around to crush people. 
But if you think of God like that, it will always lead you. It will always drive you away from him. Let's look at this in another place. I'll just read this. We see the same thing in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3, we'll pick up after Adam ascended in the garden. In verse 8, it says, They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Do you see the point again here? There's a type of fear of God where you view God as solely as the punisher who's just looking to crush people and it'll cause you to hide yourself from God. It will actually, actually drive you away from God. The same thing is happening in the parable in Matthew 25 when, when Christ is given the, ter- the parable of the talents. And you may remember what happens, happens there. This owner, it specifically says that he has these three slaves and according to their ability, he gives them talents to make money off of while he's gone. It specifically says it was suited to their ability. Well, listen to this in Matthew twenty-five, twenty-four. When God shows up to the last man who was given one talent, and he went and he hid it. He said, and the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you, where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. You see what happened? His view of his master, he viewed him as a hard man. And what that caused, it caused this craven type of fear that will repel you from someone. And he goes and he hides his talent in the ground. And beloved, a Christian can get into this. As a matter of fact, in my experiences, a lot of Christians get into this view of God where you view God as using all of his awesome majesty and his glory. He's sitting all day on his throne just waiting for you to fail. Waiting for your misstep. Waiting for you to do something wrong so that he can punish you and he can correct you. He's the great corrector, the great punisher. Charles Spurgeon tells a story of a person who uh, went to give financial help to a lady and he knocks on the door ready to give this lady some money, knowing that she needs financial help, but she doesn't answer the door because she thinks that it's her landlord that's showing up to collect the rent. So she never opens the door. If we're not careful as Christians, we can relate to God just that, like that lady. You think of God primarily as somebody who's always showing up to collect the rent. He's not for you. He's not the great supplier. He's not the great redeemer. He's the great demander who's always waiting to punish you. This will lead to all sorts of problems in the Christian life, not the least of which, just like the man in Matthew 25, it will absolutely paralyze you in your Christian life. It will absolutely paralyze you. It will make you absolutely miserable to try and live before a God like this because it's a wrong view of God. 
It's a wrong view of God. That is the fear that is forbidden. That is the fear that First John says is cast out. When he says perfect love cast out fear because fear involves punishment, right? That's what we've been talking about here. If you have this view of God, that God is a punisher, perfect love needs to cast out that fear. That fear is not tolerated in the kingdom. God wants to get rid of that in your life if that's your relation to God. Perfect love needs to cast out that fear. It's a wrong view of God and it's forbidden. Let's look at the fear that is commended. There is another type of fear that is a godly fear. Do not fear. God has come that you may fear. You may fear. This is the fear of reverence, honor, and awe. Man, I wish we could have that word awesome back. I think it's almost a lost cause because we're just not going to quit. Like, I can't quit. I've been studying this, and every time I'm, I, something happened today, I was like, man, that was awesome. It's like, no, that wasn't awesome. Like, that wasn't even close to awesome. Awesome has this idea that that word there, awe, is the kind of thing that makes you shut your mouth. Like, it takes your breath away. Something that's truly awesome is something that is so big, so glorious, it's the kind of joy that makes you quiet. Awe. That is the type of fear that God commends. We see this illustrated in the life of Peter. In Luke chapter 5, you may remember the story. Peter and his friends have been out fishing all night. They've caught absolutely nothing. Christ gets in the boat, preaches a sermon, and then tells them, let down your nets for a catch. Peter explaining the situation that they had fished all night, they had caught nothing, but because you're saying it, we will obey, lets down his nets, and what happens? Something awesome. In the actual sense of the word. Like they don't just catch a few fish, it's not like they're struggling. I mean you gotta picture you gotta picture this. We can't just read these stories. You gotta picture this. There's not just a few fish in this net. It's not just a heavy load. The boat is sinking. The boat is sinking. And they're signaling to their partners like you better get over here or we're about to be digging up a lot more than fish. The boat is going down. This is something that is actually awesome. And what happens? We pick up the story. <laughs> In verse 8, but when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and his companions because of the, fish, because of the catch of fish which they had taken. They realized on some level we have come in contact with something that is much bigger than us. This is awesome in the truest sense of the word. And he says, Lord, go away from me. I'm a sinful man. But note Christ's reaction. And Jesus said to Simon, do not fear. You hear our context? This is the same thing that's going on back in Exodus 20. Do not be afraid. God has come to make you fear. Don't have that kind of fear where you want me to go away. Have the other kind of fear. And this is what Jesus says to him. Do not fear, for now on you will be catching men. Do you see the message? God, he's saying, I haven't come to you as the great punisher. I am not here to use my glory against you. I'm here to use it for you and with you. I am going to use you. He invites Peter to come along with him. And notice the result. 
when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him, awestruck by glory and irresistibly drawn. That's what the real fear of God will do in a person. When you have this godly fear, you come in contact with majesty, but it does not have the effect of driving you away. It has the effect of drawing you to God because you know your view of God is correct, that he is for you. That he is for you. Isn't this amazing that one of the, one of the essential things of, that you have to know about the fear of God is that he's for you. It's amazing. Look at this again. Isaiah chapter 6, a well-known passage. Isaiah chapter 6 records this vision that Isaiah has of God exalted, seated on his throne, and these mighty seraphim who cannot exhaust the depths of God's holiness day and night, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And listen what happens to Isaiah when he comes in contact with the greatness and glory of God. He says, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Do you see what happens here? Isaiah comes in contact with God. He has this sense of God's awesome glory, his awesome holiness. And he says, I am undone. I am undone. But God doesn't leave him like that. He sends one of the seraphim to touch his, to touch his lips with a hot coal to symbolize this fact your sins have been taken away. Yes, God is awesome. Yes, He is wonderful. But He is for you, believer. Your sins are gone. Your sins are gone. Notice the effect that it has on Isaiah. When he sees that God is not the great demander, He's the great supplier. Then I heard a voice, the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I, Isaiah said, here I am, send me. See, he's drawn. It's right the opposite effect of Adam in the garden. It's right the opposite effect of Israel at Mount Sinai who are repelled from God with this ungodly fear. There is this fear of God which draws him. Here am I, send me. We have to keep these two things not in tension but we have to keep these two things together. A sense of God's awesomeness and His glory and His holiness. And also a sense, God is for me. God is for me. You can easily fall off on either side of those and lack an unbalanced, unbiblical in, uh, emphasis. John Murray again says this. He says, God's dread majesty can never be dissolved and neither can the sense of it in those who serve him. The deeper the apprehension of God's glory, the more enhanced will be our wonderment. It will not be the wonderment of perplexity or horror, but of reverential and exultant adoration. 
when you realize who God is and when you realize your relationship to him as a believer and you cultivate this sense of the greatness and glory of God and then all that he is for you in Christ because of the cross, it will produce in you a deep, deep sense of the awe of God that will draw you to him. But if you have this wrong view of God, if you know God is awesome and wonderful and holy, but you have no sense, you are not walking in faith in the fact, if you are indeed a believer, that God in Christ has reconciled you to himself, you will have great problems with surrender. Because what will happen is this. God will be calling you to surrender in some area, calling you to go deeper, calling you to give up something, possibly some dream, and trust the future, an unknown future, to God himself in, a, in complete blind faith, as they call it. And then what will happen? You'll hear a whisper in your ear from the devil. Be careful, he's a hard man. And if you believe God is a hard man, it will paralyze you, it will shut you down, and you will not be able to surrender to Christ in the way that you need to. It's a matter of faith in who God is. Who God is. Lastly, just as a brief note, I want to make an, uh, a note of application on cultivating this fear of God because, as I said earlier, you can't create the fear of God. You know, we joke sometimes, as if I'm going to put the fear of God in somebody. No, you're not. Only God can put his fear in people. You cannot create the fear of God. It is, it is part of what happens when you become a Christian. You remember the promise in Jeremiah 32, I will put my fear within them, but it can be cultivated. It can be cultivated. And like I said, what happens often in the Christian life, we get into this other craven type of fear and you get into problems because you have a wrong view of God. You don't view that God is for you. So we need to cultivate this godly fear. One of the things that struck me in this study, and I try to look up most every reference in the fear of God that was in the scripture, is how often this concept of the fear of God is almost used synonymously with his word or with the Bible. It's amazing how often this comes up. Al Martin says this, in one way or another, the individual who absorbs the most scripture, spiritually assimilating it into his heart, life, and very being, which means that you believe it and you put it into practice, is the one who will know the most of the fear of God. And I'll just read you one verse on this, Psalm 19. You can look at that with me if you want. Actually, I'll read you one section there, a few verses here. Psalm 19, and what we're talking about is how do you cultivate this godly fear of the Lord? And what I've said is that the best way to cultivate this godly fear of the Lord is to spend time in His Word renewing our mind. Look at this. It's actually, it's actually amazing. Psalm 19. It's talking about general revelation, which is things like when you go out and you see the sun and there's an element of glory there. You see the stars or you look at creation and there's glory. A lot of times we call that general revelation. Special revelation, though, has to do with the Bible. And that's what it talks about in verse 7. Listen to this. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Talking about the Bible. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Still talking about scripture. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. 
The commandment of the Lord is pure and enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Do you see what he just did? Then he goes on. The judgments of the Lord, which again is scripture, are true. They are righteous altogether. Throughout these several sections here, throughout this uh, several verse here, where he's very clearly talking about the Bible, he uses synonymously this idea of the fear of the Lord. Fearing God is just intricately tied in with the Bible. And if you think about what we've said thus far, it makes a lot of sense. The essential thing about fearing God is the consciousness of God and the God that we are conscious of. We need our minds renewed. When you have a sense of the greatness and the awesomeness and the glory of God, and God is not just kind of one option among many. He's not one thing going on in your week competing with a lot of other things, but he lords over absolutely everything as the God of heaven and earth. And there's a sense of majesty in that. When you have that sense, everything else will sort itself out. You don't have to figure out, well, am I going to fear God right or am I not going to fear God right? If you have that sense and you have the sense of all that God is for you in Christ, most of your Christian life is going to sort itself out. Where does that primarily happen? It happens in the Word. It happens in the Word. Nothing shortcuts a Christian's life more than skipping time in the Word of God. If you are not in the Word of God and renewing your mind, you have very, very little chance against the flaming darts of the enemy who is going to come to you every single time that you want to make a step in faith for God and say, don't do that. He's a hard man. But if you have the shield of faith and you can hold up and say, no, this is what the Word of God says. It says, no. It says, God is for me. He who didn't spare his own son will surely give me all things. God loved me. He, while I was yet an enemy, Christ died for me. You arm yourself with the Bible and what God has said is true and with truth, you will be able to quench the flaming darts of the enemy. And so as an exhortation on how to cultivate the fear of God, let's be people of the book. Let's be people of the word. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you once again for who you are and for who you are for your people. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us like it exhorts us there in Romans chapter 12 to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. God, help us to be a church that cultivates right thoughts of God. Help us not to be ashamed of anything about you or what you've done or what you will do. Help us not to overemphasize or underemphasize. God, please be with our mouths, be with our minds, be with us, Lord, and help us to have right thoughts of you. In Christ's name, amen.